0: Mets
1: fans, prepare yourselves to get Metsmerized.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Get Metsmerized podcast presented as always by MetsmerizedOnline.com. I'm your host, Sal Manzo, joined this week by my co-host and MMO executive editor, Mike Mayer, along with friend of the show, Patrick Lynn, and special guest, SMY's Jacob Resnick. Jacob and friends, welcome.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on. You know course. uh Nice to nice return to my, my MMO roots that I owe a lot to, so good to see all you guys.
0: Absolutely, and you kind of just foreshadowed it. Jacob is a former MMO standout who now covers the Mets in the minor leagues for SMY. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, settle down guys, we all have to get along.
1: <laughs> we'll, we'll edit that out.
0: <laughs> but before we get into all that, all the SMY stuff, all the Mets stuff, you may remember... That Jacob was the third kidcaster contest winner, ironically for SMY, and famously and pretty damn flawlessly called a Jose Reyes home run live in the booth with Gary Keith and Ron. So Jacob, before we get into the Mets and how amazing they're going to be, they're going to be 162 and0 and their minor leagues are the best. We need to start with your illustrious time in the SMY booth and how scared Gary Cohen was that he could have been losing his job to a people
1: <laughs> Yeah, I mean it was uh, it was a whirlwind of an experience especially for an 11 year old at the time, you know, I, I, everything from the application process and then getting called into the, the S and studios, which at the time was in Midtown to do kind of like a mock broadcast was what they, they had the, you know, the, the kids who, who had been called in, they had them do that in front of like a panel. So that was, you know, an awesome experience in and of itself. And then was totally not expecting, um, expecting the call, um, you know, that I that I'd gotten it. I remember my mom picking me up from, from school and telling me and, uh, and just being overwhelmed. And that night on the broadcast, they announced it and my name was on the, on the screen. And it was just, it was, it was cool because, you know, I, I first started watching the mess when I was six years old. Um, and, and that happened to be the first year of SNY. So I had grown up with Gary, Keith and Ron as, uh, you know, so many people of my, my generation have, you know, the way, you know, older fans grew up with, you know, Ralph Kiner, Lindsay Nelson and, and Bob Murphy. So I, I just, I was just overjoyed and, and excited and the, the nerves didn't really hit until, you know, that day and uh, getting to the ballpark and, and being there and then getting brought up to the, uh, to the booth. And <laughs> you can probably hear it in my voice. If you listen to the, the whole inning, which uh, I'm sure you could find somewhere, um, but I remember my voice just getting super dry and just being, being very nervous and Gary kind of, you know, moving the conversation along as I gave them like one word answers. But I did mention that that Jose Reyes was my my favorite player at the time and he happened to be due up that, that inning. And they, they don't tell you is that they give you, they don't have you call the whole inning. They have you call one batter and I guess it's your choice of whoever's due up that inning. And Reyes was, I think it was like eight, nine, one was due up that inning, and and Reyes came up and facing off against Brad Hand, who was a, a rookie starter for the Florida Marlins at the time, which was very funny to see that come full circle when he ended up pitching for the Mets uh, late late this past season. So not only did I call only one batter i ended up calling one pitch because reyes hit the the first pitch uh out and he was he was hitting from the right side which was traditionally his his weaker side The first pitch curveball and i don't think i ever saw the ball after it was was hit but i i couldn't even see over the the monitors that were you know on the on the the, the table there but you know when i heard the you can hear my voice. I say, back it goes. And I held that for a couple beats, looked around and then heard the the, the roar of the crowd. So I figured that was uh, indicative of, of what had happened. And then, you know, it just, it just kind of took over and, and it was fun. And it was like, you, you can see that there's a, a shot that they have of just me in the booth or, or the booth with me and, and the guys in it while it's happened. And after I say, and it's gone, I like look around at, you know, the, the three of them, like, did that really just happen? And I, I don't know, every, everything after that was, was a blur, but the funny, the funny thing is that I had told either family or like my doorman leading up to, to the game, you know, cause my doorman was, at the time was, was a huge Mets fan, you know, people had always said, Oh, what's your, what's your home run call going to be? And I kind of, you know, laughed it off as, you know, Oh, well, doesn't really matter. I probably won't need it anyway, and so just for that to all, to all come together, uh, was really, really amazing. And, you know, just, it's, it's kind of led step-by-step step to everything else that that's happened to me in my, my life related to the Mets and journalism and, and pr- all this professional stuff that, you know, and amazing stuff I've been able to do over the last, it'll be, uh, it'll be 11 years, uh, yeah, 11 years this August. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been quite a ride and it started with that, with that, uh, Lucky, lucky call, I guess.
0: That's amazing. And I just want to circle back. Can you tell us like what the interview process for what that was like, the application process you mentioned, kind of had to do a screen test at the SMY studios. Can you go more in depth into that for us? Do you know how many kids applied and like who, you know, how many of the finals were like, you know, how many kids you beat out? This is so interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know how many people uh, applied in the the first round, but I know they had 10 finalists. That came into the studios. I don't think I got to meet any of them. Maybe I saw some people like ahead of me in line, like you know, in the in the green room or, or something. But the initial application was an essay, which was a maximum of a hundred words. Which, if I had maximum hundred word essays for the rest of my life, I I would have been a lot less stressed throughout school. But the topic was, what would be your if you were the manager of the Mets? what would be your speech to the team before game seven of the world series, which is kind of funny to, I guess at the time I didn't really think about it, but like game seven of the world series, the Mets 2011 at the time, it just was not, it was not something that would ever, would ever actually happen. But I. say so pulled pull the man in, in the eighth, pull
2: him in the eighth, you know, you yeah. know just go to your
1: closer. <laughs> exactly. Something like that. Exactly. Um, but, uh, yeah, or like Ruben, watch out for uh, for that slide. Um, but, no, and so what I did was I kind of compared the current team to the 1986 uh, roster, you know, like talking about how Reyes was our Mookie Wilson and Wright was our, you know, probably Daryl Strawberry. And I don't know who the number one starter was that year. I don't know. I don't want to compare the Mike Pelfrey to Doc Gooden, but it prob- probably did something like that. Mike Pelfrey's birthday was today, actually. But, uh, yeah, so I think the Mets history thing w- was something that I, at a very young age, was very into and, and appreciative of. And, you know, I-, I would read a lot about, like, the 69 team. And I remember I had the the box set of every game of the 86 World Series on on DVD and would watch that and, you know, not really understand the specifics. But, you know, it was exciting to – to watch that. And, um, that's how my love of Vince Scully started because that was, uh, you know, he, he was broadcasting those games. So yeah, I took the Mets history angle and then got the call to the, to be a finalist. And they had a, a panel, which looking back, like, I didn't actually remember like seeing them, the panel in the, in the studio, it was at the, the old studio where they used to do the pre and pre and post game from with the, you know, the street in the background. And I think they had just like called up some, some plays, uh, on a, on a, monitor to and they just wanted you to, to call it like you would uh, like you would if you were broadcasting it I remember one was like a, a K-Rod save someone had made like a nice play to, to save the game um, that's that's the one that I remember specifically but um, so it was kind of you know what you would do if, if you were if you were broadcasting um, play by play and you know it was the kind of thing that I had done a lot like I played MLB the show when I was really young and still do when I have the time you know, and I, I turned the, the audio off and, and broadcasted like I was, uh, like I was, I was in the booth. And so that I, I kind of had like an idea and, and also, you know, like I said, watching Gary, Keith and Ron, like I was, I guess, aware of them as much as I was aware of, of the game going on um, and the, and the players I, I, you know, paid attention to to what they did well and, and how they went about their craft, which I guess, you know, was, was beneficial in, in that whole process. So, you know, I, I, feel like I was lucky to get the, you know, the nod, but I, I definitely put myself in a position to be one of the top candidates for sure.
0: That's so cool. Patrick, Mike, you have anything to add? Nothing you add is going to be as cool as that, but I forgot to give you a chance anyway. No, I, I think, <laughs> I mean, I just, I know it
3: pops up every once in a while on Twitter and it's just cool to watch kind of where Jacob's gone from that to, I mean, working with us at MMO and then now Getting to SNY, which is where we always thought he'd end up anyway, and he he still got time to take over for Gary, which I mean is what we all ultimately think is going to happen. So
1: it's funny. It's funny you mentioned the the Twitter thing because any time that the video does circulate once a year, sometimes I'll post it on the on the anniversary of it. Like the reaction will be awesome, and so many people will be like, "Oh yeah, like I, I remember that," and then some people will be like, "I remember that." And I've followed you on Twitter for a number of years and I had no idea that was you. So that's fun. And you know, it was always, always fun to see, see the reaction, like you said.
0: And I'm assuming you were the coolest kid in the lunch line the next day at school, right? Every, everybody wanted a piece of Jacob Resnick that day, talked to you about everything.
1: <laughs> yeah. It was funny because it was, it was in August. So it was, it was over uh, summer break. So I missed, you know, I was going to like a, a summer day camp in the city at the time and, and, I didn't get any sleep that night, particularly because my parents woke me up because it was the number one play on the sports center, top 10 plays that night. So it was, I mean, it was a whole thing. Like I just, I, my heart was just did not slow down at all that whole night. And, and so my mom was like, yeah, we're, we're staying home. And then the next day turned into like a mini media tour. I got a, a call from the Fox five uh, morning show with the, uh, uh, I can't remember who who was on at the time, but uh, I called into that. I and then I ended up going into the ESPN New York, which I don't even know if that still exists. Their offices to do a live interview with like ESPN News or ESPN Two. It was it wasn't on the main ESPN, but it was it was with that. And they actually spelled my name wrong. It's on YouTube that that clip. Um, and I remember I think my mom had to like turn down she was, she was like my, my agent for the day. And she had to turn down, you know, the post of the daily news who called and like, I just didn't have time to to speak to someone for them on the phone. So that was, it was just a whirlwind of thing. And it was actually, you know, not just not while school was going on, but it was the summer of fifth grade, you know, ending elementary school, going into sixth grade and middle school. So it was, you know, I'm not definitely not the type of person to go around telling people unprompted, Hey, I did this. So it was kind of like a, waiting for people to find out about it kind of thing. And eventually it, it, it did nothing crazy. But, you know, kids who were were Mets fans definitely, definitely knew about it. If the listeners
2: can't tell, Sal has never been more jealous of anybody doing anything in their
0: entire lives. I remember watching that game. You know, I'm, I'm like <laughs> six, seven years older than you. And I'm like 18 at the time. And I'm listening to this little squeak call this home run. And I'm like, where was this for me? Why did I miss this cutoff? I'm the same size as him. Why can't I hop in? would love me too. No, but the, I seriously, that was every year, particularly me and my grandpa would watch those every year because we really got a kick at it. You know, the kids coming in. I just think that's, uh, it's like, you can't even kind of write right. that stuff in Hollywood, right? Just the way you are kind of, you've, your career is pushed. And by the way, you haven't graduated college yet. I want to let all our, you know, uh, listeners know that as well. Doing all this while you're still, um, you know, in college, which is amazing. You know, again, really, really cool tidbit. And, uh, you know, appreciate you sharing that with us. But, you know, I wanted to, you know, move on from someone actually talking about the Mets booth. Uh, The Mets actually announced, obviously, early in the week that one of Jacob's former broadcast partners, Keith Hernandez, is getting his number 17 retired this summer. So obviously it's a big thing. Lockout going on. um, That got all the news with everything. Um, So I just wanted to get everybody's thoughts on that, um, what you think and if you know who you think the next Mets should be to get their numbers retired. I'm sure a lot will be obvious, but hopefully there'll be maybe some not so obvious ones.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think Hernandez was obvious to have it done. There's kind of, I feel like there's going to be kind of a backlog because the Wilpons just kind of sat on it for a while. Hernandez obviously should have been done already. I mean, David Wright is the obvious one. Like, It's not when it's – I mean, it's not – if it's going to happen, it's just a matter of, like, when they're going to decide to do right. And I think – I don't think they should make him wait around, like all these other guys have had to with the Mets. Like, he's still fresh in memory of a lot of the fans. Just do it. Do it right away. Let Hernandez have this year or whatever. I I think that's fine. But, yeah, do right next year at some point. I know a lot of people have talked about, like, Gary Carter or Daryl Strawberry, um, Doc Gooden. Some of the older guys they've talked about too, Cleon Jones, some other guys from that group. I just, I think obviously those guys have waited longer or have been retired longer. But I, I think Wright is most obvious of the group, and I think would be the most important to me to kind of just get in. Get in now while you still have that same fan base that I grew up watching him.
2: It. It, it's pretty apparent that that team history is is a part of Cohen's agenda as an owner. It is like first five years, kind of dedicating more resources to it and all that sort of stuff. And I just wonder, like, is there like a is there a, a like a like a method to this madness? To where it's like, all right, they're going to start from like the the '60s teams and the '69 World Series, and they'll make their way to the '86 World Series, and they'll kind of pick one person from there, and then maybe. You know, I know Mike Piazza already has his number retired, but like then maybe Rice the next person, but then you kind of go to the next level of people of like maybe a Doc Gooden. I personally think Doc Gooden should kind of be on the list of people who get their number retired, especially for a franchise that's become known for pitching more than their position players, especially. You can argue Jacob deGrom is better than him and has, a bet- has had a better Mets career than him. But at the same time, you're talking Jacob deGrom and Doc Gooden here. It's like, you know either way both of them should have their numbers retired eventually way down the road it's just doc is you know a little uh, probably something that should have been done a long time ago i mean obviously like the team has kept him at like a little bit of a distance at certain times for for good reason at times but i mean someone like keith doesn't have exactly a perfect past either there's a lot of mets who don't have perfect past that i think eventually will have their numbers retired so it, if, if you're going to fully embrace everybody from the Mets history, then I think Doc should definitely be on that list.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it kind of, cause it kind of feels like they're moving along in the Mets history timeline, uh, starting with, with Kuzmin now, Keith, obviously the, the next one that, that comes straight to mind if you're moving forward is David Wright. But I think the interesting one kind of in between those two guys is John Franco, who, you know, is not the greatest relief pitcher in major league history but there are certainly worse guys who have had their their numbers retired just in terms of his longevity uh he was a captain for this franchise and I think 45 is a relatively safe number to uh to retire but the thing about David Wright and obviously like I grew up um, in the David Wright era he debuted two years before I I really started watching baseball we're kind of at like a point now where guys like get like they retire and they get their number retired like the year after or two years after there, there are guys who retired after David Wright who have had their number retired already. So it just kind of feels like a, what are you waiting for kind of thing? If we're eliminating this old will pond rule of, of waiting for a a guy to get into the hall of fame, um, which, you know, being realistic probably isn't going to come for, for David Wright. Um, just kind of let's, let's get the ball rolling on that.
3: And to kind of play off what uh, Jacob's talking about, I think Keith talked, Keith had a question about it on his press conference the other day about how he thinks kind of this helps him get into the hall of fame now. And, And I think it does. So I think it's kind of good timing for him. I think this will ultimately kind of help that push. I mean, he he's got his number retired by two teams there's not a whole lot of players in major league baseball that have that. So when Keith comes up on those uh, the golden era or the older ballots like Harold Baines get in on, um, I mean, he certainly, he certainly has better uh, case than Harold Baines ever had for the hall of fame. Or, I mean, we could talk about a list of about seven or eight guys that Keith Hernandez should be on over that. So I think, I think this number retirement really helps him kind of push for that.
1: Yeah, I just looked up and it looks like there's 11 players. If this list is completely accurate, that have had their number retired by multiple teams, and like the worst player is Carlton Fisk. Like that's that's the bar, <laughs> you know. It's guys like like uh, Reggie Jackson, Hank Aaron, Greg Maddox, Nolan Ryan, Wade Boggs, Frank Robinson. You know, like those kind of guys. He's you know, he's he's joining that that group.
0: Definitely. That's interesting.
1: Sorry, but I was just going to say, like having your number retired
2: by two numbers, I mean, kind of checks a lot of boxes in terms of being elite, being important to the to the game, being important to your franchise, being you know, success, you know, all those sort of things that having all that, you know, just that would signify a lot of things like Mike said, where it's kind of like or even like Keith said, where it's like, he clearly kind of thinks about that, too, like getting into the Hall of Fame, like you would very much appreciate getting into the Hall of Fame. And because I think we all know Keith is kind of like an old school, um, you know, baseball guy where it's where it's like the Hall of Fame is is it's really the toughest in all of the major sports to get into is the MLB Hall of Fame. So really just having all those. That's just another box checked on on Keith's kind of long list.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. You know, besides having the two numbers retired, he's also, you know, in Hall of Fame for both teams too, which, you know, only a few players can say that. Um, you know, I, I would like to preface, you know, his number retirement with, I, I know there are some people I think he didn't really play for the Mets long enough for that to happen. And I could hear an argument for that somewhat. The only thing I would say is I don't have a problem with this number being retired, but if you're going to retire Keith's number, then I also think you need to retire number eight, 16, 18. You need to, th- those core, mid eighties Mets that one need to be, you know, I think should be, you know, then retired with him also. Cause I don't think you get, um, you know, Keith Hernandez in that world series without those other guys too. And I think that they're since they're so closely connected and we're that, you know, that core with Dwight Gooden including that, I, you know, I think that would be, um, you know, a good thing just on, you know, with that and also another person didn't play in that era. He played, uh, you know, with David Wright and I got to watch, I think Carlos Beltran would be a, a, another player to watch, um, if you look at it, it's one of the best three, four, five players, maybe the Mets ever had. You know, maybe one of the best three hitters overall players. Kind of got a bad deal with ownership. You know, he had that knee surgery thing that people killed him for when really he was just trying to take care of himself. Everything, obviously, with the managerial stuff and then the Astros. You know, he should get welcome back at some capacity, you know, with the team, you know, whether it's old timers day or something, but I think, you know, I said it um in the round table that I just posted today that, you know, that might be a nice kind of olive branch sort of deal down the line, you know, to, to get him back in the organization. Um, Obviously not like, you know, managing or coaching or anything like that, but just acknowledging the, the player that he was, you know, he, he was here for almost, almost a decade and, you know, was a, a great player. So I think that, you know, that would be another, maybe interesting player to think about as well. Patrick, I think you had something.
2: Yeah. Well, it was, I I think with someone like Beltron, I think that's kind of someone like if the Mets are going to like kind of oversaturate the retired number market, then like, I think Beltron is on that list, but I think if you're being a bit more selective, I think there's maybe a couple other ways to kind of bring them back into the organization rather than like, you know, just retire his number. It's like, let him be a special assistant to the GM or something like that. Um, but just to put a bow on it, like we were talking about Keith earlier, like that once upon a time in Queens doc that came out a couple of years, a, a couple of months ago, was really good. But basically every single player that was on that Mets team basically said like Keith was the captain. Keith kept, Keith kept us a shape, And so it's kind of like, it. yeah, he might not have been on the team for, you know, 10, 15 years or, or whatever. He was only on the team for six and a half, seven and a half seasons. But um, it, it's pretty apparent that he was, he was the number one guy on that 1986 World Series which you know still 36 years from that time, which is the last time the Mets won.
0: So yeah, it's uh, it's been quite a long time but you know it's interesting what you said with the documentary because I, I got that too although it seemed some groups felt it was Keith, some felt it was Gary Carter um that was interesting with that documentary but you, overall you know that that trade, is what started the success of those 80s Mets. So, you know, and we love him in the booth. I guess that's another kind of caveat to it, too, that he's still so relevant in the organization and with the fans now because he's calling games. So I'm all for it. Love me some Keith. Great fundies all around. Um, But from that, are in a lockout right now. I want to talk fun stuff and baseball, but I want to get this uh, buzzkill out of the way now. The MLBPA did, or MLB and MLBPA, I should say, spoke yesterday briefly Obviously, it didn't go well. Just want to get you guys' thoughts quick. Do we think this is going to impact spring training? Like, I'm just so over this, but it's something we just got to, you know, tackle and then get to the fun stuff. So, uh, Jacob, why don't you lead us off?
1: Yeah. And then I can't remember exactly who said it, but someone was reporting that the general feeling right now is not if spring training is going to get delayed, but by how long. I feel like as long as they can get in the range of, Uh, Three weeks, you know, actual players on the field at spring training, you know, not like guys reporting, but like guys on the field working out, working towards the regular season, if they can get at least that much time, then we can feel okay about them getting 162 games in at the, you know, at the very least tacking on, you know, delaying it, but tacking on a few at the end. If we're getting to the point where like spring training is not going to even start until when the regular season was scheduled to start, like that's when you, you should really be concerned. I think as of now, I, I, you know, and I'm sure both sides are well aware of, you know, the the point at which if they don't have a deal, like things are going to really get screwed over from both sides. Um, you would hope, <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, it, it's not, you know, I know everyone likes to throw out the fact that, yeah, a, a lockout has never led to missing games in baseball history it's always been a strike when when there have been games missed but this as far as i'm aware like isn't comparable to any labor negotiations in in baseball you know recent baseball history like since the introduction of of free agency since the union was was created like there really hasn't been this type of negotiation where the, the two sides are just completely at opposite ends of the spectrum so I'd love to to fall back on, on precedent but it's uh, becoming tougher to to do that as every every day goes
3: by. I think at some point the owners are gonna feel this crunch of that possibility of, of missing games. I mean how, how could the I just don't see how the owners go into the third straight season where there's something off between the short season in 2020 and then last year, not having uh, a lot of places didn't have fans for most of the year or full capacity for most of the year. So I, I I just can't imagine the owners getting into that type of position again, where they're going to be losing monies just from not being able to put fans in the seats for the most amount of games Mm -hmm. that they can. But yeah, I think, I think the reality of missing or having a shorter spring training is definitely possible and getting more likely as we get there. But I don't, I don't really see that as a big deal. I think players are fine. I, d- I don't think players like that long of a spring training for the most part anyway. So I think if you're talking about them missing potentially a couple weeks of spring training, I, I think that'll that'll kind of work itself out and be fine. Um, at some point, the owners have to wiggle here. And they have to wiggle beyond some of the ridiculous things that were mentioned yesterday, like basing um, stuff off the top 150 prospects in baseball um, for service time stuff. You know what that
1: that proposal felt like to me? It felt like the the embodiment of the uh, Steve Buscemi, how do you do fellow kids GIF. You know what I'm talking about? It felt Lovely. like just like it just feels like MLB is just completely detached from like what the reality of the current state of the game is like that was that was beyond me, that top 150 prospects thing. Well, that's like kind the, of been like the, that. Oh, so, sorry, Mike, but,
2: but that's been the that's been the Rob Manfred era is that like the owners and, and the leadership in baseball have just gotten further and further detached from what like fans actually want. And unfortunately, that labor negotiations is the reason that Rob Manfred is still commissioner. There's no other earthly reason why Rob Manfred would still be the commissioner if it were not for these labor negotiations in his history of winning labor negotiations in the eyes of the owners.
3: Yeah, it's just like we... So they didn't talk for 42, 43 days and this is what the owners come up with. And it's just like, no, like you've got to be kidding me. Like this... This isn't even a real negotiation. And, I mean, going back to it, we're in a lockout because that's what the owners decided to do. They didn't have to put Major League Baseball into a lockout. They chose to do that. And then now they're still 42 days later coming up with ridiculous ideas and still trying to play hardball with the players without really giving it all on their end. Um, I know you get to a point where you, I mean, it's just frustrating to see that because you understand where the players are coming from with a lot of this stuff. Um, Ronald Acuna shouldn't be forced into taking the type of deal that he took or other players with these type of extensions, but they feel like they have to because of how cheap they're getting paid. I mean, Pete Alonso is made more money in his career from winning the Home Run Derby than he has playing in the major leagues i mean that's crazy that's crazy to think about the guy's got 105 big league home runs and he's made more money in the home run derby than getting paid by the team it's just it's such an obvious area that major league baseball needs to fix and they're they're still giving so much pushback on it that it i mean honestly pisses me off
0: yeah no and mike it's funny what you said you know to, to what your your point is there, when we talked to Caleb Joseph a couple of weeks ago, he made the point of like, you know, players, the, some guys sign with the team 16, 17, 18 years old, 19 years old. They're with that team. Then they can't leave. They can't choose to where who they want to, you know, work for until they're 30, 31, 32, you know, 29 to, to 32, whatever, depending on when you come up or whatever it is. But it's a long, long time to not be able to choose your employer. Um, you know, that, that I, I thought,
1: I, I remember looking up when the Mets signed Trevor May, and I'm pretty sure I tweeted at the time that he was a free agent that offseason for the first time in his career. If you asked, you know, probably a hundred ca- you know, casual to diehard Mets fans, what year they thought Trevor May got drafted. I'm sure they wouldn't guess 2008 it was, it was, it was when Trevor May entered professional baseball and it took until after the 2020 season for him to have some sort of say in where he lives and worked. And the interesting thing about guys like Trevor May and you know Caleb Joseph who you mentioned, like that's the majority, you know, like the the Acunas, the Alonzos, like those are the rare cases. And like obviously Major League Baseball should have a, a financial structure that rewards you know properly rewards players who who excel at, at such a young age and early in their careers but like they've also got to take into account the the guys who, you know, don't don't make the major leagues until they're 25, 26, even 27 and and you know with the way that service time gets gamed, and especially, you know, the marginal players who are optioned up and down so like they might play 4 years in the majors and not even accumulate 2 years of service like because that's how the system works you know they they're just kind of going to be spit out by the by the system when they're 32 33 and if you're not uh you know an Acuña Alonso level talent at that age, like you're not getting anything you you'd be lucky to get a a minor league deal in the off season so uh it's it's certainly it's kind of a, a microcosm of of uh, the country we live in <laughs> when you look at the the financial structure
3: yeah i mean to touch on that just from a Mets standpoint, Jeff McNeil was drafted in 2013. Um, He's not going to be a free agent until after the 2024 season when he's 31 years old. Like, so he would have been in the Mets system under Mets control for 11 years. And I mean, up until this year, you're talking about a guy that's had a very good major league career. It's just crazy. I mean, 11 years of control for a, any type of player without any type of extension is just, it's too long. It's just too long. And I, I think you have to, sh- you have to shorten that for the players. And I, I do think that it's likely that there's some wiggle room there. Cause I, I think the owners realize that there's just not going to be a deal done unless there is.
2: I mean, it's even worse for international players too, right? Like, cause these are guys signing at like 16 years old and you know, I'm not, I'm not, their minor league clock doesn't start the second that they're signed with the team. Right. Unless we'd see, you know, a bunch of guys coming up at 21, 22 years old. So it's like, if a guy signs at 16 and then maybe they're not a free agent until they're 30, that's like, it's even worse. You know, If if that's, and that's just becoming like a standard, like decent MLB player. That's a long time from that initial even if we're the best guys, the initial two, three million dollar signing bonuses that they get—that's a long time until they eventually hit free agency and maybe you know are able to make eight, nine, ten million dollars a year or something. So I know we're going to talk about international free agents, you know, just a bit. But I mean, Max Scherzer said in his in his in his Mets press conference because it was you know a day or two before the lockout started. He he basically said players have been saving up for this lockout since basically the minute they signed that last CBA negotiation five years ago, he said they have a war chest. That's pretty big. I Obviously we don't know what the number is, but it seems like the players are really hell bent on like making sure they get a much better deal this time around than they did last time. Maybe the owners are just, you know, waiting to call their, to see if they're bluffing. I guess they have to go through that whole thing, but I mean, if they're not bluffing, which it really seems like they're not bluffing, like it seems like the players are absolutely willing to give up games this year in order to get a better financial deal, which totally reasonable.
0: Yeah, no, you know, it's uh it's not fun stuff. But again, you know, especially with the sports going, you know, guys are coming up earlier and earlier because they're, you know, so financially um appetizing for the teams as far as you know great players with not a lot of you know um economic value yet because they're you know still you know on their rookie deals or whatever it is you know Caleb Joseph said kind of the same thing guys are coming up earlier and earlier then you got to let them go to free agency earlier you know that that that's not fair can't be manipulating you know the the side like that so hopefully they get something done I just don't want to miss games and I don't want spring training to be you know Into the regular season and also guys getting hurt because they weren't able to ramp up correctly and things like that, especially for the Mets who have like whole teams like over 30, not for nothing. They're good, but not a lot of young guys. So, you know, we want as perfect of scenarios as possible. That's what we got to put out there. So let's let's get our stuff together here because this is really annoying. But um I want to pivot from all that nonsense now to the Mets minor leagues. And last week we had uh Jake Mangum on the show. Uh shout out him the most positive dude in the minor leagues by far. You can't find a more positive guy telling you. Um but we spoke to him how if at all the Mets minor league culture has changed with new ownership. Um so Jacob, I was wondering if you've spoken to any players or anyone within the Mets minor league organization who's said anything, you know, to that.
1: Yeah, not not specifically like Um, I think if anything, like, I don't know, just the general sense I get is that there's more like pride, if anything, uh, among the group, like, and, you know, if you follow any of the guys on social media, you can see when they react to a big signing or, you know, a, a big win during the, during the regular season. So, you know, guys might comment on, on Twitter or, you know, they'll, repost stuff on, on Instagram. Like it just, it just feels like everyone's a little more excited to, to be a Met, not to say that they weren't in the past, but um, definitely feels like they're, they're building kind of a, a, a more of a a pride. Like I, like I said, you know, I I think the, the biggest area where, where Cohen can concept of Steve Cohen, (laughs) you know, in a way can, can impact the, the minor leagues and in the, uh, immediate future is just the the resources that he he puts into them, and and I don't know specifics in terms of you know if he's if he's buying them them uh, you know better post game spread or something like that. Like I don't I don't know exactly what's going on like in that in that area, but you know the the attention to uh, you know building up the infrastructure. I know a lot has has been talked about uh, you know the increased analytics presence in the minor leagues. Um, I think it's definitely worth clearing up that. And I think a lot of people are are getting this wrong. That like they think the Mets have like never even tracked like exit velocity at the minor league levels, and like that's not true. Like they they've had uh, trackman operators at at all of their minor league affiliates um, since at least 2016 when I first started covering Brooklyn Cyclones games. Um, so so they, they've had they've had the the infrastructure the basic infrastructure for a while it's just kind of how to and this is what separates the the dodgers from the colorado rockies is how do we take that information and transform it into uh you know actionable uh you know an actionable resource to to improve you know our, our player development you know, the, the, from coaching to uh, decision-making signings and, you know, promotions and, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm intrigued and, and looking forward to seeing where where the organization goes over the next few years. Uh, Cause the minor leagues, even, you know, Steve Cohen with his financial power can't change everything overnight, um, you know, and, and not even within the first two years of his, of his ownership. So. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing I guess maybe in a few years where like everyone in the organization was acquired since he took over when you kind of get into the full on Steve Cohen era like kind of just what what the organization looks like then and I I think he's done a good job of of putting people in place who are you know of that that same vision so it's uh, it's definitely a, a time to be excited about, about where the organization is going. Um, I, I definitely would not complacent and think that, you know, a, a top prospect list that has Alvarez, Beatty, Vientos, Mauricio, like that's the, the pinnacle because there's uh there's definitely a lot of room for them to, to grow.
0: Interesting. Yeah. You know, another thing Jake had mentioned to us too, just as far as like, how it was last year. And, you know, asked if there are any philosophies, any like, you know, principles that were changed. And he said, that's something that he noticed. It was kind of like the, the Mets brass kind of took a step back this season, just to evaluate what they had and to see what kind of players they had and just let them do their thing. So they can kind of, you know, evaluate from there, which I thought was really cool. And, that's something from someone who's, you know, successful business person like Cohen, that's, sa- that sounds about right. And Jake talked about how it made him comfortable. You know, he would struggle first half of the season, then he had a good second half. So, but he, you know, talked about how that something like that um, was, you know, didn't press, so to speak, especially, um, you know, with having off for a year and um, you know, making swing changes things like that. So that was, that's interesting. Uh, Mike, you had something.
3: Yeah. Well, first I wanted to kind of point out that, you um, it's kind of tough to evaluate to a, a point because the Mets had hoped that Hugh Quattlebaum and Kevin Howard were going to be two of their main cogs in the minor leagues for the entire season last year, and they both got up, brought up very early in the season in May to be the hitting coaches at the major it, league. It Rimbled. was actually
1: it was the eve of the minor league season. It was yeah. literally the day before the minor league season started.
3: Yeah, so you got these two guys that are supposed to be um, two of the most important pieces in running the minor leagues and kind of getting that change over from what they had before, and all of a sudden they're gone. So I think getting them back down there and then um, some of the moves that they made to to promote um, all the guys that are going to be managers this year in the minor leagues in their full season ball were there last year, too, just in different roles. And this year, they're also going to have an—they're uh, going to have an analyst with every single team too, to kind of like Jacob was talking about that they've had that information before, but it was just kind of making sure that information got to the players, that make sure the players understood that information that they were given. So now having one of those analysts with each of the teams is kind of a big step in doing that, um, making sure that the players can adapt to that information if they, if they haven't to that point. And um, I also know that Brian Hayes is going to be the director of um, player development. And part of his role, when I talked to him briefly was that the Mets are focused on him trying to help throughout the system, build a winning culture and just, just that mindset of winning, getting it done at, an early level i know that sounds like cliche kind of like whatever but just look at the rays last year i mean the rays have been a very successful team at the major league level for a while and their minor league system every single one of their teams had a winning record last year and overall they had most wins in the minor leagues so just i mean obviously the minor leagues are there for development but you also want to build that winning culture and get that into those players systems early. And I think, I think that's a good thing for the Mets to target going forward.
0: Absolutely. No. And, you know, pivoting off of that, you know, obviously we have two of the best around on the show right now who cover the Mets minor leagues. So Mike and Jacob, we're going to have you play a little game of either or. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to name two Mets prospects. And I want you to tell us who you're rocking with long-term. Who you think is going to be the, the better long term uh, major leaguer. So first off, we have Brett Beatty. First, Mark Vientos. So Jacob, why don't you start us off?
1: Yeah, um, I think Mike probably knows what my answer here would be. Um, I've I've long been high on on Vientos, um, even before Beatty got into the system. I thought that just his his. Potential tool set and kind of what he was showing at, at such a young age. I'm pretty sure he was the youngest guy in his draft class overall. Like He was still 17 for his entire first pro season because his birthday is in December. And the thing like prospect fatigue is like a legitimate thing. Like it happened with Wilmer Flores back in the day. It happened with Steven Matz to an extent. It's probably actually happening with Ronnie Mauricio right now. And it's definitely happened to Vientos where Mets fans and the prospect industry just has heard about the name and been aware of the name for such a long time. Um, and when guys like, you know, Francisco Alvarez and Brett Beatty, not that they're not worthy of attention, when they come into the organization at a later date, it's kind of the the shiny new toy that, you know, fans get get really excited about. So the, the Beatty versus Vientos right now actually reminds me of the, during the 2019 season when you had a uh, David Peterson versus Anthony Kay conversation that was was going on and you know Kay was his first pro season and he or second pro season I care not yeah second pro season cuz he had missed all of 17 the pitch in 18 and he made the futures game that year and was was pitching really well like the numbers on on the surface were were excellent and that's all Mets fans wanted to to hear about was Anthony K, Anthony K, Anthony K, and David Peterson was still there at the same level, still chugging along and just doing what he did really well. And I tried to kind of remain steadfast in you know believing in in the skill set, not getting caught up in in uh, in the hype as much. So that's kind of how I felt about Beatty versus Vientas. And you can argue that Vientas had a better offensive season than than Beatty did. It's just that Beatty got a promotion to Double A. And for most of the season, Vientos didn't get up to triple until very late. So I'm going to go with Vientos. I think Beatty has certainly the opportunity to to be the better player long term. I think he still has a lot to kind of hammer out in terms of just how consistently he impacts the ball in in games. I'd probably give him the defensive edge, the, the edge defensively. But man, watching some of those home runs that Mark Vientos hit uh, in Binghamton last year, it was really really a sight to behold he's also on the 40-man roster now so I think we're gonna we're gonna see him in the majors sooner than we see Beatty even if they maybe both kind of show up in the majors this year but I'll go with I'll go with Vientos over Beatty for now
3: yeah and I have to disagree with Jacob on this one and I think he knew that was coming yeah I mean I think we see Viento sooner and I think he makes a impact sooner I, I think both of them are big league players I think Vientos the the power from Vientos is incredible. I mean, you talk to people in the Mets organization and they just rave about his power and consistently comparing him to Alonzo. Their exit velocities and their travel distances, all of those get compared to Alonzo and what he did at the Double A AA and Triple A level all the time. That being said, I I just have a tough time seeing where vientos plays in the major leagues defensively um Mm -hmm. i don't think he's a third baseman um long term he's you're talking like jd davis type at third base um and jd davis has played a lot of third base at the major leagues I i don't think the mets would have preferred that he did um but he has um vientos also played in the outfield some this year to um, show some versatility, but he's not gonna end up in the outfield. I think so I think Vientos ends up being uh JD Davis with out that block at first. Well, not with the Mets, obviously, with Alonzo there, but I think the Mets would like it in a perfect world where Vientos is not playing a ton of first base. And with the lockout, we're talking about there's a DH that could come. Um, maybe that's where. Vientos and Alonso can coexist is them switching off. Um, but yeah, I I think Vientos has major league power. I think he has legit major league power. And I think he's the type of guy that's going to hit a lot of home runs, whether it's with the Mets or they end up using him as a trade chip. Um, but getting to the reason why I think Beatty is the better prospect long term is I think he's a third baseman. I think coming into this year or last season there were certainly some still questions about his defense at third. And to me, his mobility was much better this year. He looked more athletic Um, side to side movement was much better this year. I would actually call him an above average third baseman at this point. And he actually looked fine in the outfield too. Again, he played some left field to get some versatility. And I think he's passable out there. If that's somehow where the Mets wanted to end up where you have, Viento's at third and Beatty in left field, per se. And Beatty, I, I like his approach at the plate. He's patient. He waits for his pitch. He's showed a ton of all-field all power. Um, the one concern I have there is his ground balls. He led the Mets minor league in ground ball percentage, which obviously isn't something you want to see at all, but less so from a guy that you're going to expect to play third base or left field, both positions where you're expecting some power from. I think that's something you want to see worked out hopefully this year. Uh, I'm not rushing him at all to the major leagues. Just put him in AAA, let him play a full season at AAA, and see what happens from there. But yet, I think think the overall skill set of the combination of offense and the ability to play defense makes Beatty the better prospect overall.
0: Interesting. So, uh, all right, I'm going to pivot to Patrick, please.
3: Well, hey, if we need a tiebreaker
2: here, I'm clearly not as knowledgeable as these two guys. (laughs) However, I I think both of them are going to be, like, good offensive players at the major league level. But I'm going to give the nod to Mark Vientos because he's from Pembroke Pines, and that's where I'm from. No way. uh, Yes, sir. we, we, We got a handful of MLB players from Pembroke Pines. J.D. Martinez is from there. Mike Napoli is from Pembroke Pines. Uh, None of them went to my high school. My high school started in like 2012 or so. So we don't have any MLB talent just yet. Fernando Rodney lives in Pembroke Pines. I remember seeing him at a little league game and going to get an autograph, not for his autograph, but to see his little sixth finger that he had. Um, So that's, that's why I'm giving Mark Vientos the edge there.
0: That's great. It's great analysis. Very analytical. Thank you for that, Patrick. We're (laughs) going to move on now to, uh, the uh, two other players I want to talk to you about, guys. Who do you think is going to have the better major league career between TJ Ginn and Matt Allen? We're going to start with you, Mike. This one's, this one's tougher
3: because um, just because kind of what happened this year. I mean, Allen had Tommy John surgery. So he missed all of this year and he's going to miss, I mean, at least a chunk of uh, 2022. And Ginn was coming back from surgery. And, I mean, he pit, I mean, he pitched pretty well. He didn't have the same velocity as pre-surgery. Oh, geez, this is a tough one. I mean, I think overall, Allen is still got the higher ceiling, clearly, of the two guys. I think he's got the better fastball. I think he's got the better breaking ball, too. And, honestly, from all of his work in um, the Brooklyn camp during the 2020, um, I think – I think the results of him working on his changeup are pretty encouraging too. Um, he, the hype on that pitch is pretty good, and I just, I mean, it's tough to, it's tough because we haven't seen Allen throw a pitch post Tommy John, but I, I do, I have Allen ahead of Gin in my rankings that are going to come out next week. So I still want to see where Gin's velocity is going to be at because he's still. I mean, we're less than a year coming back from Tommy John from him. So, I mean, sometimes it takes other guys a little bit longer to get back to full velocity. So, yeah, gun to my head, gun to my head, I'm taking Allen long term.
2: But but with Gintu, sorry, but before Jacob pops in here, like like Gint's not gonna have like a power sinker like somewhat like a Jury's Familia though, right? So like, he's he's not gonna be touching someone like Matt Allen, who was sitting at 97, 98, or, you know, before he fours elbow blew out. But
1: yeah, that, that's, you kind of see where we was reaching that velocity in, in college. So like it exists, whether like that's smart for him to, uh, you know, to, to try to throw as hard as he can as a, as a starter long-term, whether, <laughs> whether it's smart for, for Ginn to, you um, you know, try to try to be a, a hard-throwing guy as a starter when, like, he could succeed as a low to mid nineties sinker guy, get a ton of ground balls, and uh, his slider is really good too. Um, so, like, I, I certainly see uh, a path for JT again to be a very good major league, uh, you know, consistent starting pitcher. Allen, like, usually I don't really care if a guy gets hurt not don't care if a guy gets hurt, don't care in terms of projecting his major league future. Like, you know, guys get hurt and they have surgery and, you know, and and they recover from it at a rate that didn't used to be the case. Um, So I'm not usually concerned, but I think I'm kind of just because of uh, how little we saw of Allen in a professional setting pre-surgery, you know, kind of where he'll be afterwards. But I will say the last time, we did see Allen on the mound was as an 18-year-old pitching in a pennant race and then in the playoffs for the Brooklyn Cyclones in 2019 when they, when they had their, their uh, historic run to the New York Penn League championship. And he was still kind of on limitations. I think he only maxed out at about three innings in, in an outing. Um, but, like, he threw some of the best stuff that that league saw that entire season. And it was impressive. He carried himself like, you know, a, a veteran and he was, you know, literally just fresh out of high school. Um, and, and it was really, really impressive to see. So I think he has the, the, the tools and the makeup and the work ethic. I know, you know, anyone who's, who's ever seen him. I, I remember we, we talked to Brett Beatty in that weird time where Alan was like named to the Cyclones roster. And then he got, hurt and he needed Tommy John. So like, we thought he was going to be there. So we had asked Brett Beatty about, about Matt Allen and they had room together and they had faced off against each other in spring training. And like, he was just over the moon about, about him. So uh, like Mike said, I think the ceiling that is still very much in within reach for Allen is, is too, too tantalizing to, to pass up. But I do think JT again is going to, um, be a major league starting pitcher uh, and have have a, a pretty nice career for himself too.
0: Interesting, Patrick. Either of these guys from your town? No,
2: <laughs> no, not, <laughs> none of them. None All of right. them. I did hey. go to the University of Florida, though, so we got a couple of those guys in the system. And then shout out Pete Alonzo. Oh, but go um, Gators. Yeah, no, I, I, basically, just from like a more common fan perspective, like stuff that that, that Mike and, and and Jacob have reported what other evaluators have said is just basically like, like Matt Allen could be the real deal. Matt Allen could be a frontline starter. And like, it's, it's hard to compare prospects, but then it's also hard to compare pitching prospects when they really seem like two different pitchers too. But it certainly seems like Matt Allen has a higher ceiling of them, which is me just echoing
1: basically what these two guys have said.
0: That's all right. So now
1: Matt, Matt, I just want to real quick, Matt Allen had a commitment to play at the university of Florida. So I guess there's your tiebreaker right there. Go Gators, baby. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very nice. Unfortunately, they, uh, they need a new football coach, but I guess it's the wrong podcast for that, but we'll move on. Um, two other players I wanted to ask you guys about uh, is Adam Oller versus Jose Buto. So, Jacob, I'm going to go with you on this one to start.
1: Yeah, uh, I like both pitchers, and I think the fact that both of them were added to the forty-man roster is indicative of how the organization um, thinks about them um, and how they they viewed the you know the potential loss of either of them in, in the Rule Five draft as one that would be significant a significant hit to their their starting pitching depth, which is is pretty thin and and uh, kind of starts and ends with those guys in terms of like close to major league ready prospects. Um, and it's funny, I say prospect, but like Adam Oller is not a traditional prospect by any means, because I believe he's either 26 and about to turn 27 or he's already 27. And he's not a homegrown guy. He's kind of bounced around throughout his career. And, and I think just his story as a whole kind of, first of all, makes me a little, you know, personally partial to him. You know, he, he had been in the pirate system, and then was cut, contemplated just retiring and giving up on baseball altogether. And then found his way to to indie ball. The Giants picked him up, and then determined. I, I was I love the the minor league Rule Five draft because it's just the most arcane of the arcane baseball rules. But basically, when when you're left available in the minor league phase of the Rule Five draft, it means that basically the organization has determined that you're not one of the seventy eight best. Rule five eligible minor leaguers or you know players in the organization that includes the forty man roster and the thirty eight AAA roster. So Oller was not on the map, but the Mets saw something that they liked, and that was going into the twenty twenty season. And I kind of forgot about him as a whole, and you know didn't really have him on on the map. Usually, those minor league Rule Five picks are just depth. And uh, credit to him, he worked over the over the twenty twenty quarantine canceled season, and and really. You know, refined his arsenal and, and his velo ticked up, and so it's a it's a great story, and, and he's a he's a legitimate guy on the map, not not any crazy upside, but I, I do think his his arsenal is just more kind of complete and wholesome, I guess you could say, than 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 Buto's Buto has I think a major league quality fastball. Maybe it's a, it's a tick below average on the major league scale, but like it'll play, and he commands it well, and he has a good changeup. But like his curveball's still coming along and he's not he's not using it against against lefties at all. So he, he only has two pitches to to throw to lefties. And you know, he was he was kind of tearing through, tore through high A and, and double a you know, against guys who really hadn't seen him before. So I think Butoh could pitch in the major leagues and certainly probably will pitch in the major leagues and and probably settles in the bullpen, whereas Aller has the kind of the 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 multiple pitches that that work for him that he knows how to use really well that could you know he could he could make some some spot starts for the Mets and and I wouldn't feel like they're they're completely punting on that game by by starting him and and perhaps he settles into a, a multi inning relief role but I wouldn't I wouldn't discard him just because of his age he's kind of been been a late bloomer in a sense so I'll go with Oller on this one yeah
0: interesting Mike go ahead I
3: had this question put in just so I could talk about Buto that's all I wanted to do. Um, no, not to take anything away from all at all, like Jacob was saying, I mean, this is a guy that almost quit baseball and then basically got left over by the pirates and the Mets took him. And I mean, he went, he went and pitched in Australia in the winter and that was kind of like his jumping off point after pitching on Australia. And that kind of boosted him up and kind of where he took off for the Mets this year. Uh, yeah, I mean he's a top 15 in prospect in the Mets system at 27 years old. Um yeah, th- he's going to make a start for the Mets at some point this year. I mean 9 to 10 guys do every year and he's one of the best 9 or 10, so I think I think we'll see him this year and yeah, I think like Jacob kind of said I think ultimately he's the guy that Goes into that um, kind of the swing role where, like Trevor Williams did this year, where he does a little bit of starting, a little bit of multi-inning relieving, that type of thing. Um, just for me, long term, Butoh, for me, his just how good his changeup is is what I'm excited about, or what I gives me a higher ceiling for him. Um, that pitch is a plus pitch for me that he uses as a, as a swing and miss pitch against lefties and righties. Um, he was actually better once he got the double a this year, he pitched really well in Binghamton 50 strikeouts and in 40 innings and only nine walks in Binghamton this year. Um, and that was his first taste of double a, um, he looked really good his fastball was using wherever he wanted to go His change up in all counts. Um, yeah, and I do agree with Jacob that his um breaking ball does need work. Needs to be refined. I I think I'd like to see it a little tighter and command of it would need to be better too for it to be a real third big league pitch. Um but yeah, I think I think obviously the age is on his side being 23 versus 27 of Aller and I just think his his secondary his, being a changeup being the best secondary of the group of the two guys kind of gives him that push to be, have the higher ceiling of the two.
2: What well, I'm bigly hearing from, from you guys is that it seems like we'll see all potentially even this year, but it also seems like Buto is maybe the guy who might stick around longer once he eventually gets to the majors. Does that
1: analysis kind of feel about right? Yeah, I think Buto probably open in the Syracuse rotation. At least I'd like to to see him there, but it's kind of similar to, to what mike was saying about about Beatty, like just throw him in syracuse and and let him let him be there the entire year and, and get settled and and have a a body of work at the the highest minor league level you know on his on his track record and then and then we'll see him going forward um i definitely wouldn't wouldn't throw uh puto in the major leagues tomorrow um and you know but once he he gets you know, more of that work done and, and has, uh, you know, Jeremy Hefner his his uh, guidance and, and the tutelage. I, th- I think they'll start to, uh, you know, see him develop as he, as he moves along um, where, you know, and, and Ahler's, like I was saying, his, his story is, you know, maybe it's like kind of cliche, but like, he's, he's had to grind out his, his entire career. And he's one of those guys that is, you know, going to overcome any of the, the challenges that, that you throw at him. And, um, he doesn't, he doesn't have a plus pitch <laughs> like Buto has a plus change. Up. He doesn't have a, a plus pitch. So he's not, he's not, um, you know, blowing up, uh, scouting reports across, across the league, but he's, he's just one of those guys that I think is going to, you know, outplay what the, what the expectations are.
0: Interesting. And lastly, two guys I have for you, I want to end with, uh, Carlos Cortez versus Jake Mangum, our uh, friend of the show jake bunch go ahead
1: yeah uh this is uh this is a fun one uh i definitely uh, i know jake jake is always he's always paying attention so i don't want to i don't want to say anything that's going to get the uh the pitchforks coming out of mississippi state uh thrown at me um i think listen i think if you asked me this question a year ago it like it would have been no brainer like you know carlos cortez is you know not a top prospect by any means but like compared to what he brings to the table against Mangum like a year ago would have been no question, uh, Cortez. And I think Mangum has not just closed the gap, but like made it pretty close, um, with how he's really reinvented his game. And, you know, you know, he talked to you guys on, on the podcast about how he realized that that in pro ball, what he did in, in college wasn't, wasn't going to work. Um, and wasn't going to be what, got him to the major leagues um or would get him to the major leagues eventually um and there are very few guys who can like one recognize like their shortcomings and like the gap between where they are and where they need to be and two, like actually get there and put in the work to to get there and like that's the type of player mango miz like he's gonna uh set out to accomplish something and and do it um he already had the, the, the plus glove that I'd say double plus glove, even like, it's amazing. I first saw him in Brooklyn every day in in 2019 and like the way he played that center field, which is a massive center field in Brooklyn. um, The way he would track down balls and the routes he would take and like knowing when to go into a slide or not, like this dude, like has a, just an innate ability to play the outfield. I would have even argued at the time in 2019 that like he could make the major leagues just based on his, his glove and and speed alone. Not saying that would have been a guarantee, but like, that's how good, good those, those two tools were, you know, the, the contact tool, the hit tool was, was good in 2019. It just kind of felt like he was swinging a wet newspaper. Like he would, he would hit the ball and like nothing would really happen. And part of that probably was some of the fatigue after playing the entire college season. And then, kind of going straight into to pro ball. Um, but power was like not, it didn't, it didn't even register. Like you just knew that he was going to be a slap hitter and that was kind of it. And credit to him for, for adding uh, power to his game. I think, I don't think he's reached his, his uh, potential, which is not something you usually say for someone who like entered pro ball at his age. I think he was 23 when he was playing in Brooklyn, um, which is like older than even the, the typical seniors he's kind of defying the traditional uh, prospect aging curve that, that you usually see. Um, and I think he he's continuing to incorporate the power into his game and credit to him. He really added that to his game this year and didn't really sacrifice the, the contact ability. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful that that Mangum is going to become a more of a factor as we move along. Um, and I think he could definitely be a valuable uh, outfielder off the bench. But that being said, Cortez's power is like, it's legitimate. Like it, you don't really have to question it. Like it, it's there. It's, it's even like up there with, you know, I don't I don't think it's the in-game power is quite there yet as it is with Vientos, but like in terms of ability to absolutely smoke the ball, like Cortez is, is up there as well. Um, it's just the defensive home is like, more than an issue or in like a question than it typically is with the prospect, because and I think Mike would agree with me, like second base made sense for him, like throughout his, you know, him coming up and, and coming into the organization, it was like, okay, the guy's five, nine, he's not like the most mobile, you know, he's not like one of those quick twitch guys. So like second base, if he was going to play there, like perfect, it worked out. He, you know, he threw right-handed when he played second base and, left-handed if he went into the outfield which was kind of a a gimmick thing uh that that fans liked but i worked for him and then he went and became a full-time outfielder this year and i don't really understand why i feel like i read something saying that he like didn't feel comfortable at second base at all which if that's the case then then so be it but like if he had the ability to play a competent second base and play a confident competent corner outfield spot then like that would cement him as like a potential below average major league starter. Like I think that's how good his his hit tool is and his control of the bat and and power and that that combination. I just really don't know where his development is going defensively. So I'm gonna take him over Mangum. I don't feel like great about it because Mangum's the type of guy that's gonna hear that and and take it upon himself to prove me wrong. So. Um, I feel like it's pretty close, um, but I'm a, I'm a sucker for exit velocity.
3: So I'll take Cortez.
0: Mike real quick. Go ahead. Ah, uh, this is, I
3: totally went into this and went into this season. Like Jacob was saying all aboard the Cortez train. And, um, then the Mets had to protect players from the rule five. And I got talking to some people in the Mets organization and, not, not that they were down on Cortez because they obviously like Cortez. They drafted him multiple times. Um, but, yeah, they, they had concerns, like Jacob was talking about, where is he going to fit defensively? Because he played second base his first couple of years and then he went into, again, he went and played in Australia and the winter ball and they had him play all over. He played first base, he played second base, and he played both corner outfield and then last year he played exclusively in the outfield, where he played left and right. And I mean, he's not—he's not a butcher out there. He's not—I don't see him as a Dom Smith out there or a Lucas Duda out there. But he—he's also not an average defensive outfielder. But I don't think he's when he was at second. I don't think he was an average defensive second baseman either. So it's tough to kind of see where the Mets want to go with him going forward. Um, Like I said, he didn't play any second last year. I think ultimately what they should do next year is, I mean, they didn't add him to the 40. So essentially what they're saying is that um, they felt comfortable with him being available in the rule five. And to me, that tells you kind of like they don't see him as a starter long-term. So, next year in triple a where he's going to play i assume is bounce him around have him play left field have him play right field have him play first base second base stick him over at third every once in a while get him some reps there i mean i think his bat is good enough um his power is good enough that he's the type of guy that's going to have value off the bench kind of like a wilmer flores type guy that isn't going to be great defensively doesn't move great but he's a threat off the bench every time he's at the plate and those type of guys are valuable. Uh, I mean, we saw it in spurts with guys last year with Brandon Drury or Jose Peraza. Um, none of those guys could, um, consistently do it, but you saw in spurts what that type of bat off the bench could provide. Um, I think, I I think I've talked myself into mandum. um, and not just talked myself into, I think Mangum talked me into Mangum and his performance did too. Like he said, he really struggled to start this year, but he didn't have a full spring training. So the start of last year was really his spring training and he kind of struggled Mm -hmm. to start. But after that he took off and he took off in double a, which was impressive to see. And he took off with power. I mean, he hit more home runs, last year than the rest of his college and pro um, career combined. So, yeah, that's a significant power jump. And he's still good on base at a pretty good clip. And like Jacob said, he's a plus-plus center fielder. So, I mean, any guy that's as fast as Mangum and can play a plus-plus center field is going to get a shot in the big leagues. Um, We've seen Alberto O'Mora from the Mets last year. We've seen those types. I mean, the Mets kept trading for those types. Keon Broxton, Jake Marisnyk, those guys get shots in the major leagues. So with his type of power, um, I think that makes him at least an an interesting kind of... It certainly jumped his ceiling up. Um, I always thought he was going to make the big leagues. It was just kind of a matter of what his sticking power was. And I think that power gives him a chance to at least be like a rotation... guy in center field. And to me, that ends up being more valuable than a utility power type that Cortez is. So I think so for me, I'm gonna take
0: Mangum long term. Interesting Patrick, real quick. I just wonder if someone
2: like a Mangum, because it seems like Cortez and Mangum and Vientos and all these sorts of guys will be playing a lot of outfield for AAA. And I wonder five, 10 years ago if someone like Mangum would be able to mask the defense of someone like a Cortez or or a Vientos in the outfield but now with the information that all the teams have on on every movement that a player does in the field obviously they'll be able to tell a lot clearer if like Cortez is even playable you know at the outfield level and I I don't think the Entos will but yeah I mean just like Mike said that's basically what I was gonna say is, is that anybody whose defense is clearly as stellar as Mangum's is is that he's at least going to get a couple years even if it's as a fourth or fifth guy off the bench and the bat never totally comes around like he's going to get some he's going to play in the major leagues so um and that's kind of the guy that the Mets are going to need over the next couple years um you know even 2 3 years down the road is they're going to need somebody like that who can you know come off the bench or even just be like a strictly defensive center fielder
0: yeah no absolutely and uh just As we've been talking the last few weeks, seems like there's a minor leagues are plentiful now and, you know, the the future could be bright for them. It's exciting. You know, obviously a lot of excitement at the major league level. That's where, you know, we care most about. But it's nice to see that in the pipeline that there's, you know, some future talent there, that there could be some sustained success. We'll see how it goes. But uh, we've been on entirely too long. So we are going to wrap it up here. Um, Jacob thank you so much for coming by Hopefully it's not the uh, last time Hopefully you have you on more during the season We'll have to talk to your bosses over there SMY, Make sure we get you here more But uh, thank you so much again And tune in next week everyone You know, For the latest in Mets land I'll say it every week until it happens Hopefully we'll have a deal next week And we'll have a baseball season So I'm going to keep saying it until it happens But until then don't forget to get Metsmerized yeah,